Good morning. My name's Amy Foster. I'm part of the teaching team for Women in the Word. I'm so happy to be here with you today, and I want to say a welcome to the ladies in the West Campus. We're so excited to have you a part of us also. Well, today's about the, you know, the beginning of October. We've just experienced back to school, so I wonder how many of you from your homes, did you send somebody off on a first day of school this year? Raise your hand. Any of you? A few? Okay, how many of you have ever gone yourself on a first day of school? Aha, almost all of us. Okay, we know that experience. It's filled with excitement and uncertainty, isn't it? Lots of change and development happens over the course of a year. Uh, I want you to imagine this scenario with me. I want you to imagine that two girls are going off to college, both girls going for the first time. We're going to call the first one Girl A, and let's say she's going on an academic scholarship. She's always been successful in academics and extracurricular. She's beautiful. She's socially very astute. She's always had lots of friends, and people have pursued her. She's confident. She knows what success looks like. She's on top of her game and ready to take on the world. Girl A goes off to college. We've got another girl. We're going to call her Girl B. And she's going off to college, but her experiences are different. She's going on financial aid. Um, She's not really sure why in the world she's there. She's never been that strong a student, but everybody keeps telling her she needs a college degree, so she's going to college. She doesn't really know how to interact with the other students. She feels like she's not a part of their world. She's actually been pretty hurt and disappointed by friendships and social groups in the past. She's not sure why she's there. She's afraid of people, afraid of failure, afraid of the unknown future, and she's feeling pretty disappointed. Both of those girls will go into college and all they'll take with them are those experiences and they will both face many of the same kinds of opportunities. They will have to decide how they will respond to the opportunity to preview an exam before they actually take it or any other number of things they could do to gain an academic advantage. They'll have to decide how they will respond to the opportunities that come with relationships with handsome young men. How will they pursue friendship? Will they pursue friendship as a place to give and invest themselves or a place to be served and cared for? Or will it just be so risky that they'll never pursue it at all? How will they make plans for the future? How will they find purpose and meaning? How will they um, define success? If they use their past experiences, they're going to go in all different kinds of directions. How will the girls ever know how to make these choices? They share something in common. Both girls have a worldview, and their worldview will determine how they handle all of those choices. A worldview makes all the difference. So we're going to talk today about what is a worldview. And a worldview is something that everybody has, but not everybody can define theirs. Not everybody is fully aware of what's in their worldview. But it's basically a set of beliefs, a set of truths that you have put together, and you hold them close, and you assume they are true. And from all of these beliefs, that's how you interpret everything that happens to you in life, and that's how you make decisions. So basically, your worldview is your set of beliefs that helps you explain your reality. And it can be the glue that holds your life together and makes it cohesive. Now, we weren't born with a worldview, but everyone develops one. And we actually begin developing this from a very young age. As the tiniest children, we learn the basic things about right and wrong. And we start holding on to those truths, normally just because we want to protect ourselves from the consequences that come when we mess up. So we start with the 
idea of consequences and good things happening and bad things happening. And as we mature, we get more ideas about what's right and what's wrong and what's good and what's true. And as we mature some more, we start thinking about ideas about um, what really matters, what has value, what has purpose, how do we define success, who do we want to please. It begins with just behaviors and then we add to it beliefs and we start knitting all of those things together and we develop this filter and the filter is your worldview and everything that happens to you you make sense of it based on your filter and everything that comes out of you you do because of your filter so your filter or your worldview is extremely important um, we develop our worldviews both consciously and unconsciously. There are things that we will deliberately look to because we want them to inform, inform us and shape us, like trusted good parents, wise teachers, maybe religious leaders. But there are other things that actually unconsciously inform our worldview because we're not even looking to them. We're not asking them what truth is, but because they're around us and surrounding us, they influence us. And that can just be the culture around us, everything that we experience in the world. And we might not be seeking truth from the culture, but because it's everywhere, we start absorbing ideas about truth unconsciously. Here's a really simple example of this. A few years ago, I was at a famous art museum, and I was in a building that had art that was all from a, about 100 years earlier. And it was all from that time frame, but it was different artists from different parts of the country, I mean, different parts of the world, different countries. And as I looked at this art, I could see some consistencies. They were all depicting their ideal of beauty and their ideal of beauty was always women and most of them were uncovered and unclothed and as I looked at all this ideal of beauty from a hundred years ago I thought why did all these artists paint such chubby women why are they all chubby and I had to recognize you know the artist is painting the ideal of perfection at his time so a hundred years ago, there was a totally different idea of what was beauty. And here's what it looked like, ladies. Narrow shoulders, plump, full hips, squishy thighs, soft, curvy tummies. If you said the shape of this woman has to match a letter of the alphabet, it would be the capital letter A. And that's what all the artists from this time said was the ideal of beauty. And why did I react to it? Because that's not my version of beauty. My version of beauty is not something I consciously sought. It got imposed on me. Everything in the world around me and the culture tells me what beauty in a woman is. And she's not shaped like a capital A. Today, she's shaped like a capital T, isn't she? <laughs> she's endowed up top. She has narrow, thin, athletic hips and a flat, muscular stomach and the skinniest thighs. She doesn't look like me and she doesn't look like any of those women from 100 years ago. I didn't seek out that version of beauty. It came to me unconsciously because everything in our world has imposed that on me. And our worldview is developed the same way. Some things we consciously pursue and, and accept as truth and other things we just absorb because it surrounds us. So since the beginning of time, there have been different worldviews, and Christianity has existed among those worldviews. Some are religions like Judaism, Christianity, Hinduism. Some are philosophies like New Age and existentialism. 
Um, The worldview that's prevalent today really began appearing in the late 1800s, and in some ways it's unlike any other worldview that's come before it. It's called postmodernism, and we're going to stop today after we've spent three weeks looking at the first three chapters of Genesis, and we're going to look at the postmodern worldview. And the reason we're doing this is because it's important for us to identify characteristics within this worldview that stand in total contradiction to the truths that we have just studied in the book of Genesis, the truths that we find in a biblical worldview. And we need to understand these characteristics because just like that ideal of beauty, these characteristics are all around us and they're influencing us. So today, consciously and unconsciously, every fabric of the culture that we experience is promoting these ideas of postmodernism. We can't watch a TV show, a big screen movie. We can't read a news commentary, listen to a political speech. You can't even read the message that's printed on your paper Starbucks cup without being influenced by postmodern ideas. I'm not joking. Somebody showed me one of those cups last week, and it was a postmodern thought. And the interesting thing is it's presented as the the accepted idea, it's presented as total truth, and it's presented as normative in our world. So before we talk about postmodernism, let's talk about what it means to have a biblical worldview. And maybe you're asking, why are we talking about this now? I came here to study Genesis. Well, if a worldview is a set of beliefs, and those beliefs include what you believe about God and man and right and wrong and why you exist, where would a biblical worldview come from? It would come from God's Word. And what we see right now is that the foundations of a biblical worldview actually come from the first three chapters in Genesis. So rather than studying one passage today and focusing on that, we're looking back at the last three weeks and all the passages that we've studied to see these um, foundational ideas about a Christian worldview. Within Christianity, we know there are some differences in theology, there are some differences in practice, and we know that not all those differences are deal breakers. We talked about that a little bit our first week when we talked about different ideas about um, the creation account. But we also know there are some certainties that are primary to our Christian worldview, and there are some truths that we absolutely all have to land on in order for everything else that follows to make sense. And we're going to call these pillars of a biblical worldview or pillars of a Christian worldview, and they are the foundations upon which every other truth rests. So among these basic foundations, we need to be in agreement, and they all come from Genesis. We're going to talk about these pillars. They are who is God, who is man, what is truth, and why do we exist? And we're going to go real fast, so hold on. These questions are central to the Christian faith and a biblical worldview, and we're about to address them. Who is God? Genesis 1.1 answers the question, who is God? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is not explained. He just is. This means God is eternal. He has always existed. He didn't need for someone else to create him. We see God is before all things because he created all things. And he created simply with the power of his word. So from Genesis 1-1, we see God is eternal and powerful, and he is the creator of everything. 
We also see his character in the very first verses in Genesis. We see his goodness and his mercy and his generosity. You'll remember from a few weeks ago, just in the first five five verses of Genesis 1, it says God took what was ruined and empty and he filled it. He took what was formless and and void and he filled it with all good things. So we see he's a God who creates order and boundaries where there was disorder and chaos. And seven times in that account, he says, it is good. It is good for man. That shows us God's character. We also see God's wisdom in the creation account. Because as God creates each thing, he also declares its purpose. Everything was created for a purpose. He shows us the sun and the moon had the purpose of providing light and separating day from night and distinguishing seasons. He says that sea life and birds and animals, they had the purpose of being fruitful and reproducing according to their kind and filling the earth. And he declares man's purpose too in chapter 1 verse 28. You remember that from our first week. So who is God? He is the good and powerful creator who in wisdom declares the purpose for his creation. But there's another phenomenal thing we learn about God in Genesis, and it's he is a God who can be known. He's a God that we can know. All through these Genesis accounts, we see God speaking. We see him questioning. We see him interacting with his creation. We never see him as an unknowable, unapproachable God. He even shows us that he wants to be known in the way he describes himself. In chapter 1, God describes himself as Elohim. This means the powerful creator God. In chapter 2, he describes himself as the Lord God. This adds Yahweh to the way he describes himself. Yahweh is the covenant-keeping God, the God who seeks a relationship with man. He's a God who can be known, and he shows us in Genesis who he is. He wants to be known, and he wants to be known because when God God is known. God is glorified. That's what we do in our praise time here. We make God known, and it's for his glory. So a simple answer to the question, who is God? God is supremely able. That's on your outline. God is able. Now we have to look at who is man. If we're going to build this into our filter of our biblical worldview, we're going to look to Genesis to tell us who man is. It says man is deliberately made different from all the rest of creation. Genesis 2 tells us he was made in the image of God. And here's what that means in the image of God. It means he has things in common with God. He actually shares traits in common with God. He has the ability to rule the earth. He has the ability to create life, to procreate. He has the ability to be self-conscious, self-aware, and also God-conscious, aware of God. He has the ability to discern and to reason and to love. He has the ability to choose, not simply to be driven by natural instincts, but to reason and to choose. And he also bears the responsibility that comes with those choices. So these things we share in common with God are important because man was made with a spiritual capacity, a capacity to live in a relationship with God. And that's man's purpose. That's who man is. He was created to live in the world united to his creator. But Genesis 3 goes on to show us a little bit more about who man is. He was originally created innocent and placed in a perfect and good environment. And he was subjected to a test of obedience. And God told him how to behave and gave him the freedom to choose. And he failed the test. He chose disobedience. So as a result, man is still uniquely made in the image of God. But man is profoundly disabled. Man is disabled. 
I think it's interesting. We live in a culture that is so comfortable with the term disability. We think of a disability as a specific limitation that a person was born with. Um, It's not their fault that they're disabled. They didn't do anything to cause this. They were simply born this way. It's out of their control. We think of other people as disabled. We don't like to think of ourselves as disabled, and we certainly don't think of all of mankind as disabled. But Genesis tells us that we are. If you'll notice in Genesis, it was always God declaring what was good for man, what would enhance life. It was always God. And man would prove his disability to distinguish between the things that enhance life and the things that detract from life, the things that are destructive. That's what happened with Adam and Eve in the garden, and as a result, they fall from that place of perfect unity with God that previously existed, and we talked last week about they developed this anti-God mindset that we all have, and it's always opposed to God. Romans 3.10 on your verse sheet describes this, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have all become worthless, No one does good, not even one. So if you really want to know who man is, man is created in the image of God, but he has a great disability. Man is unable to discern good from evil on his own. He is plagued with an anti-God mindset that wants to choose his own way. And as a result, even though man was created to live in community with God, he stands condemned and judged by God. So on his own, man can never fulfill his purpose of living in unity with God. And the interesting thing when we look at who man is, is it also shows us more of God. We never see God diminishing man for this disability. We never see God beating him up because of this disability. Instead, I think we see God rushing in saying, I want you to see who you are. I want you to see that you have a disability because I have accommodations for you. We also live in a culture that understands accommodations for disabilities. And God is saying, you are like a blind child. You can't read my word. You can't recognize truth. You can't see where the boundaries are to keep you safe on the road. But I'm coming in with accommodations, and I'm giving you Braille. I'm putting my truth here in words. I'm speaking it in your heart. I'm putting my spirit in you so you can stay safe on the road. But God is saying, unless you recognize you have a disability and choose to use my accommodation, nothing is going to benefit you. God lets us choose. Next, we have to look at what is truth. Genesis also answers the question, what is truth? Seven times in Genesis 1, we see God declaring what is good. And then in chapter 2, we see God declaring what is not good. For man to be isolated and outside of community and with no one else like him, God says that's not good. We see God making divisions. He divides day from night, land from sky. He divides the seasons. And in chapter 2, verse 16, we see God declaring what is permissible and what is not That's the first time we see the thou shall and the thou shall not. When God does these things, God is declaring truth. And God alone declares what's good and what is evil, what is permissible and what is prohibited. And God will test mankind to see if we obey him and if we embrace his version of truth. And unfortunately, we often fail to do this. And spiritual death, separation from God, that's the consequence that comes to all of us. So when God is doing this, 
um, and declaring truth, here's what we learn from Genesis. Truth doesn't change. It's constant and it's absolute. Truth becomes a pattern of behavior that God prescribes for man. And ladies, read your Bibles. The pattern doesn't change. God doesn't change it. In Genesis, we never see God telling the creation, you go decide for yourself what's true and good and right. You report back to me. He never looks at them and says, tell me what you think about that. What, What do you think is true and good and right? God declares it. He tells us what truth is. From this, we take the truth that um, absolute truth exists. It comes from God. It stands. It's unchanging. If you think truth doesn't stand, we saw this in chapter 3, the false idea that God would not punish sin, that God's truth would not stand. There would be no consequence. We saw that was a false doctrine. It was a lie. And all of creation suffered the consequence when God's truth was violated. So God's truth is constant. Why do we exist? We've really covered this, but, but we'll talk about it a little bit more. Um, if you've ever taken a philosophy class, you've wrestled with this question, why we exist. Genesis tells us, you know, we were made in the image of God. That means made with a capacity to have a relationship with God. No other creature has this capacity. And God doesn't require the relationship for us, but he desires it for all of us. And he gives us the choice to live in that relationship with him. We see in Genesis that God gave man the function of procreating and filling the earth with people. And he gave him the function of ruling over and caring for the creation. We saw that in the very first chapter. But it's very clear God didn't create man because he needed man to take care of the world. The God who created everything with the power of his spoken word could sustain everything just fine on his own. He didn't create man because he needed man's help on the earth. God gave man these functions and these responsibilities because they would move man to obedience and to worship. They would put man in a position where he was serving and worshiping God. God also gives us these functions because it causes man to reflect the image of God in the world, the image of the God who creates life and the God who governs and manages things well and beautifully. And when we reflect God's image in the world, that attracts other people to a relationship with God. So we exist for one reason, and it's to be in a relationship with God. And that was God's ultimate blessing, his ultimate goodness that he could give to us. Now, I think we get confused today when we start thinking it's all about receiving the blessing. It's all about us. It's all about our happiness. That's a bit of a distortion here. When God blesses us With this relationship, it reveals his goodness in the world. And when that happens, God is glorified. That's the end result that God is going for, his glory. God's purpose, Deb said this week one, God's purpose is to glorify himself by blessing his creation. That's the message of Genesis. And it's not about receiving the blessing and being really happy. It's about receiving the blessing and that glorifies God. It's about God's glory and that is why we exist. And we see all that in Genesis. Also in Genesis 3, we see man's 
disability to make that relationship happen. Um, But we see that God in grace sets a pattern to restore us to that right relationship. In grace, God offers to cover the sin and shame and disobedience. He does that for Adam and Eve in the garden in chapter 3 with covering them with skins, sacrificing an animal. That was the Old Testament way God made a way for us. The New Testament way is covering our sin and our shame with the sacrifice of Jesus, his death and resurrection. So man's way to cover his own shame, fig leaves in the garden or maybe justification, rationalization today, man's way is never adequate. Only God's way is adequate. God alone declares man's purpose, and where man is disabled, God sets the pattern to restore us to have that relationship with him. Those are the pillars of a biblical worldview. Those are the truths that we have seen in Genesis right here in the first three chapters. God is able, man is disabled, God sets the standard and declares it truth, God tells us why we exist, and he makes the pattern, the path, so that we can fulfill our purpose. These ideas come from Genesis. They are fully developed and supported through the entire rest of the Bible, but they start in Genesis. Okay, now we're going to talk about the pillars of a postmodern worldview or the postmodern philosophy. We need to understand them. We need to understand uh, where they simply can't line up with our biblical worldview. But before I do this, I'm just going to acknowledge to you I'm not a philosopher. I don't have a philosophy major from school. I've read a few books. um, And we're going to talk about some really big, huge ideas, and we're going to synthesize them down into tiny, simple little ideas because I'm simple, and we only have 45 minutes. So if you've studied philosophy, forgive me for turning these big ideas into little things. We've actually just taken some really big theological ideas and put them in really little pieces for you too. That's that's how we're going to look at this postmodern thing. But before we start this section, I think it's important for me to communicate this conversation is a conversation among believers. This is a conversation for us, for those of us who have accepted the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. Um, When that happens, God tells us that he puts his spirit in us and his spirit gives us understanding and discernment and wisdom. When that happens, we make a commitment that we are accepting God's truth as the standard. So the conversation that we're going to have right now is for those of us who have made that decision. It's a conversation we need to have so we can understand the subtle ways our culture has been influenced to think contrary to God's truth. It's a conversation we need to have so we can protect our hearts and protect our minds. But if you were my boys, I would say to you, this is a family conversation. That means we're going to talk about it in our home or in our car, and you're going to be careful when you take this conversation out into the world. So this is a family conversation, and it's going to help us live in our world as salt and light and like a city that shines on a hill. But it is not a conversation to take out into the world and pound the world over the head with it. Okay, let's make that clear. Postmodernism is the pervasive way of thinking in the Western world, and it's been pervasive for uh, the last uh, almost 100 years. Elements of postmodern thought are in every aspect of our culture today. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, we can all peacefully coexist. We can take the best from both. Let's look at them side by side and see if this is possible. The pillars of um, postmodernism, the first one we're going to talk about is agnosticism. You've probably heard this term before. Agnosticism literally means no knowledge. 
no knowledge. So agnosticism says that any claims about the metaphysical, anything that isn't material, any claims about the metaphysical are simply unknowable. So that means truth claims must be demonstrable, there must be material evidence, they must be something we can prove. Because everything is evidence-based, nothing can be known for certainty about things that are spiritual. Nothing can be known. Agnosticism says God may exist, but it's impossible to know about him with certainty. It says knowledge of God is unknowable. You may not consider yourself an agnostic, but we see this idea permeating our culture. We have a mindset that nothing spiritual can be proven. And when that happens, our view of God moves away from God that, who tells us who he is in Genesis, and it becomes our own version of God, as the idea that it's, it's a hazy, blurry thing, and we can't know any of it for certain. Because we can't be certain, we take a freedom to create any version of God that, that suits us. And here's the really dangerous thing about this thought. It suggests some things about God. It suggests God doesn't want to be known, or God is incapable of making himself known. And that is not the God of Genesis. The Bible tells us of a God who wants to be known. The Bible tells us of a God who created mankind in order to live in a personal knowing relationship with him. The Bible tells us that God tells us who he is in his word. Look at John 1.1 on your verse sheet. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The Bible tells us God makes himself known in creation. Romans 1 says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. God makes himself known in nature. God makes himself known in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.15 is talking about Jesus. It says he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. God makes himself known and he pursues a personal relationship with each of us. Not only can we know him, he wants to be known. If you have a biblical worldview, you cannot believe in agnosticism. Agnosticism is a false view of God. All right, the next pillar of postmodern thought we need to look at is the idea of absolute truth. Postmodernism says there is no absolute truth. Now, this, this is kind of a hard conversation to have. When you look up truth in your dictionary, truth is defined as a statement, an idea, an expression, a symbol that matches reality. So truth by its definition is certain, it's unchanging, it can't be contradicted. In postmodern thought, uh, truth is not about what is certain and unchanging. I'm quoting here, truth... Um, Truth is not about accurately representing reality. Okay, listen to that, and I'm quoting. Truth is not about accurately representing reality, but instead truth is a social practice or construct that serves our purposes in a particular time. According to this idea, truth changes from one situation to another, from one setting to another, from one time to another in order to suit us. Whether we embrace postmodernism or not, um, we see this influencing our culture with a new emphasis that doesn't emphasize truth. 
It instead emphasizes feelings. If I feel it, it must be true. We've replaced I know with I feel. We used to have principles based on truth. We called those virtues. Now we have preferences. We don't have virtues. We have preferences. And preferences vary from person to person and situation to situation. And we live in a culture that says we must accept each other's preferences. Emotions and feelings and intuitions and even mystical experiences are now more central than what used to be called truth. Definitely more central than anything we would refer to as right or wrong. So whether you embrace postmodernism or not, you live in a culture that has an aversion to absolute truth. And it has a name. It's called tolerance. Tolerance is an aversion to absolute truth. Tolerance says we must accept all the different views on truth. Not just we're going to exist together, but we must accept them all as truth. Tolerance says we can't be so narrow or dogmatic to proclaim that anyone's views might be wrong. Believing in absolute truth is considered intolerant and anti-intellectual. And the only place it's accepted not to be tolerant is towards the people who believe in absolute truth. It's kind of blurry. Genesis shows us God declares constant and unchanging truth from the beginning. Genesis shows us man is incapable of determining for himself what is true and what is good. And the whole story of the Bible goes on to show us what truth is. On your verse sheet, John 17, 17, your word is truth. Your word is truth. So truth comes from God. This is really important. If we take away absolute truth, there's no longer any standard for us to follow. There's no longer any pattern that God has set for us. We simply follow our own experiences, our own desires, our own feelings. In the absence of absolute truth, sin does not exist. Ladies, if you think this doesn't matter, if we raise up a generation that thinks sin doesn't exist, they also think they don't need a savior. This really, really matters. If you have a biblical worldview, you cannot believe in the absence of total truth because this is a false view of sin. The next pillar we're going to look at is called relativism. Relativism says all views of reality are true within the context of an individual's culture or environment. Okay, That means everything is true depending on how you experience it depending on how you see it. Relativism says it's impossible to know anything with certainty related to moral values, to know with certainty whether something is right or wrong. It simply depends on the individual's context and their unique situation. Relativism says we determine truth for ourselves. Each person uh, interprets reality their own way. Each person determines what is right or what is wrong based on their own experience. You've probably heard this. Well, you've never walked in her shoes, so you can't say whether that's right or that's wrong. Have you heard that? That's relativism. You've also heard there are many equally valid ways to view the same reality. That's relativism. Obviously, this only works in the absence of absolute truth, right? Let me give you a really primitive example of relativism. I got this at Lowe's last night. It's, it's PVC, but we're going to pretend like this is an elementary geometry class where you're learning shapes. 
When you're learning shapes, you learn circles and squares and all that. You learn this is three-dimensional. It's not flat. And this shape is called a cylinder. That, that's what you learn in grammar school. And, and that's considered true. Well, it's three-dimensional and it's a cylinder unless your experience is different. For those of you sitting right here down the middle, you might experience this as one-dimensional and a different shape. What shape do you see? A circle. And you folks over here, squint your eyes a little. You're going to experience this as one-dimensional. It's a different shape. What shape is it? It's a rectangle. Well, which is it? Is it a cylinder? Multi-dimensional? Is it a one-dimensional circle? Is it a flat rectangle? Relativism says they're all true. It just depends on how you experience it. Your experience is what makes it true. When I was walking in this morning, coming across from the parking garage, I don't know if any of you have noticed, you can push a handicap button and it just makes these big glass doors swing open. There was a mom with two little kids and her hands were full and she pushed that button. And as they walked through and those doors swung open, the little boy looked up at his mom and said, Mama, is it a magic trick? (laughs) So cute. And I thought, you know what relativism would say? Yes. If you experienced it as magic, it's magic. That's a real simplistic definition. Um, Whether we embrace postmodernism or not, We live in a culture that says you can't say something is morally wrong for me unless you know my circumstances. My circumstances will dictate whether it's right or whether it's wrong. Religious truth is personal and individualistic to me. We live in a culture that says I'm not going to impose my views on someone else because I don't know their circumstances. In this culture, Everything revolves around your personal experience, your personal perception, including how you view worship and how you view spiritual community. I'm going to step on our toes a little bit here. Relativism says everyone interprets reality their own way and determines for themselves what is right and what is wrong based on their own context. Relativism would rewrite Genesis 1-1, and it would read, In the beginning, man. It wouldn't be in the beginning, God. Relativism puts man and his experience at the center of everything and allows man to decide who God is relative to who I want him to be. Have you ever heard, I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I don't believe in a God who allows suffering. That's relativism. Genesis shows us everything is not relative to man, but it's relative to God and his standard. Genesis shows us God gives the standard, and our experience of that standard does nothing to change it. As a matter of fact, Adam and Eve had very different experiences of sin, didn't they? It tells us that Eve was deceived. Adam was not. He transgressed. So did they get a different consequence? Was it a different experience? It was not. God called both of it disobedience, and they both suffered the consequence for it. In Genesis, we see personal experiences do not alter God's standard. The rest of the scriptures support that. Proverbs 14, 12 on your verse sheet. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way to death. If you have a biblical worldview, you cannot also believe in relativism. It's a false view of man. It makes man central and not God. The last pillar we're going to talk about is called pluralism. Pluralism says all views are true, even opposing views. 
Pluralism says that the opposite truth claims can both be true. This goes beyond simply just understanding and accepting that we believe things differently, but it actually dictates that even the differences, they're both true. We have to accept them both as true. Religious pluralism says no one religion has the sole exclusive source of truth. Truth can be contained in totally contradictory religious beliefs. Pluralism would look at a, at a group of people and say, you're an atheist, you're a Buddhist, you're a New Age, you're an existentialist. They're all true. They're all true. Um, this is a hard one for me to talk about because it certainly appears illogical, doesn't it? Pluralism would say, I could stand up here and say, this pulpit is solid and this pulpit is liquid and they're both true. And that seems illogical to me because in the Western world, we've always used the rules of logic and reason um, to evaluate things. All philosophies before the postmodern worldview, they've been evaluated based on the rules of logic and reason. And one of the primary rules of logic and reason is called the law of non-contradiction. And that means truth can't contradict itself. It can't be solid and it can't be liquid at the same time. Truth cannot contradict itself. But we can't really use that law because that's assuming that truth is unchanging. <laughs> and we've tossed that one out the window already too, so it all gets pretty blurry for me at this point when we have to toss logic out. Um, whether you embrace postmodernism or not, you live in a world where pluralism is lauded as an achievement and a virtue, and it's called diversity. Diversity is pluralism at work. All views are true. All roads lead to God. We all have our own path to God. If it's true for you, it's cool and true for me. Plural, pluralism says all views are equal and true. Pluralism allows us to take a little of what we like from any religion or idea and create our own God, our own morals, our own path to heaven. But Genesis shows us all paths don't lead to God. We see Adam and Eve trying to make their own path. First, they try to make a path that's paved with disobedience. That doesn't work. They fall from their relationship with God. Then they try to make another path where they cover their sin and their shame in their own way. That doesn't work. Genesis shows us there's only one way to a right relationship with God. Pluralism doesn't work. God has prescribed the way to have a relationship with him. On your verse sheet, John 14, 6, Jesus is talking. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish and have eternal life. In 1 John 5.11, and the testimony is this, God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life, and he who does not have the son does not have life. If you have a biblical worldview, you cannot believe in pluralism. It is a false view of salvation. You can't fulfill your purpose in life. You can't be united to the creator God in your own way. 
Now, each of these pillars, they might seem reasonable, peaceful. It might seem like we can live harmoniously together with these kind of differences. If you line up the postmodern foundations next to the biblical foundations, which you can do on your outline, you can see they're in total contradiction. If you think about a culture that wants to encourage people to fulfill their purpose and have a united relationship with God, but the culture says God can't be known, Man doesn't have a sin problem. Man doesn't need a savior. Any path you choose will connect you to God. We've got a problem. I hope you can see from this that these ideas have permeated everything in our culture. But ladies, these ideas aren't just out there in the world. These ideas are in here. They're in the room with us. They're in some of our hearts. They're in some of their minds. And I'm just confessing to you, they're jumbled up in me. Sometimes they, they have come at me. They have infused the way I think sometimes they're in our church, just like that modern image of the perfect female body is in me, even though I don't want it. And it bothers me every time I stand in front of a mirror. Some of these things are in me also. This is why within the Christian church, we struggle with sexual sin almost as much as outside of the church because we don't accept absolute truth on that subject. It's why within the church, we struggle with accepting God's terms about what is life. It's why within the church, we're uncomfortable with discipline and correction and rebuke because who am I to speak into somebody else's circumstance? And I'm going to be real honest with you. This one hits me at the heart. It's why within the church, we mess up the idea of worship and we think it's supposed to be about us. It's supposed to be the kind of music I want and the lighting set the way I want and people around me dressed like me, making me comfortable. That's relativism, and it's messing up worship. And you know what else? Relativism messes up Christian community, too. Christian community that Jesus says is supposed to be you putting the towel around your waist and being willing to love and serve each other. Relativism twists Christian community to, well, I want to serve you on my time schedule, and I want to serve the people who I choose, and I want to serve the way I want. It's in us, too, and I'm just confessing to you, it's in me. So what do we do? This is a lesson, again, that we don't take out into the world and pound the world with. It's a lesson for God's church, and the lesson for us is to evaluate our filter, evaluate our worldview, and take out the things that don't fit, because they have filtered their way in. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God has put us in the world, in the culture, but he has asked us to live differently in the world. And that means we have to look very closely at our filters. We have to look at what do I believe is true? Where did that idea come from? Where did I get it? Then we have to allow God to transform our hearts and our minds, and we have to let him tell us what is true. And that's how we become salt and light in the world that he's asked us to live in. So those college girls could have gone off to college with their very different experiences 
but they could have landed solidly on really firm ground if they'd gone off knowing. Imagine this. They go off to college knowing they are made in the image of the Most High God, and he wants to have a relationship with them. If they go off knowing they have a disability, they are inequipped to determine for themselves what is good and right, but God has come along and accommodated them, and he has given them truth, and he has given them his spirit, and he has offered to guide them and protect them. If they go off knowing their value comes in living in a relationship with God, those girls are going to be all right. Let's pray. God, you are holy and righteous and at the same time good and merciful. And we are so grateful to know you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for showing us who you are in your words, in history, in the way you interact in our lives. Um, Thank you for putting us in this world with the reality that we are to love our neighbors and reflect your image. Lord, we just ask for your help there. We acknowledge that we are disabled. We need you to transform our hearts, and we need you to transform our minds. So we ask for your help. We ask that you help us hold on to your words and understand them. Help us learn from them. Help us be transformed by your truth and your understanding so that we live in a way that brings glory and honor to you and you alone. This is our prayer, Lord, and we ask it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you.